is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. A labor dispute disrupting ports here and along the rest of the West Coast. We'll go in-depth into how this impacts our local economy. It's a new and maybe crazy idea floating around now about who President Biden should pick as his running mate for 2024. And imagine sticking something into a printer and out comes a tasty fish dish or perfectly cooked steak. Sounds like something from Star Trek or the Jetsons. It's now quite real. You know, I've actually been to restaurants where I could swear the food did come out of a printer, but I don't think that that's what's meant by this. Or was at least run through one. Yeah. We start, though, with the labor dispute at the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. Jock O'Connell is an international trade advisor at Beacon Economics. Jock, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Briefly describe to our listeners what exactly this is all about. Is it about money? Is it about benefits? Is it about both? Neither what? Apparently now it's come down to the issue of wages. Uh, the old contract uh, between the International Longshore uh, Union and the representatives of the steamship lines and the terminal operators at the ports expired uh, nearly a year ago on July 1. Um, they've been working without a contract since then, and uh, at this point things are showing signs that uh, the, the labor Union is becoming irritated with that fact. So uh, there's been selected actions taken uh, over the past month or so at ports up and down the, the U.S. West Coast to indicate their displeasure. Uh, this is the, the latest manifestation of that. Now, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff comes through the ports of LA and Long Beach. Uh, if if there's a major problem here, how will this in fact uh, impact our economy here in Southern California? Well, it depends on who you are. It's, you know, clearly, if you're an exporter, uh, you've got a cargo, you've got a container full of uh, a perishable commodity that's that's waiting to to leave um, to an overseas market. Then, if this is a disaster for you, you're not going to move that that container as efficiently as as you'd like. Uh, the broader economic situation is is fairly minor. Uh, there's one terminal in this case. Uh, of the several terminals at the ports of LA and Long Beach that's affected by the action today. So it's it's not going to be a very dramatic impact locally. The the real impact on the regional economy will be more long-term, and that has to do with the reputation of the, the two ports as being competitive gateways for international trade. Uh, 20 years ago, those two ports handled over 57% of the inbound container traffic from the Far East. That share last year declined to less than 45%. Uh, there are reasons for that. One was the uh, the opening of a, a new larger set of locks at the Panama Canal in 2016 that enabled larger vessels to carry more containers directly to ports in the, the east and Gulf Coast ports, by coast ports like Savannah and Houston and all the way up to New York, and you know, in that context, it's it's worth you know calling attention uh, to everyone that uh, most American consumers and the bulk of the the nation's manufacturing capacity uh, still sits a lot closer to East and Gulf Coast ports than it does to West Coast ports. So they have that advantage there of proximity. 
So, Jock, do you do you see then a, a migration uh, away from the ports of L.A. and Long Beach to a degree that they become uh, secondary or tertiary or worse in terms of how shippers perceive the ports? Well, that's the the critical question: How do shippers perceive these ports? And then, and the ports and the uh, the labor problems that the ports have encountered. Uh, do not bode well for the image in the eyes of shippers. So unless you're, you know, if you're an importer and you're bringing goods into uh, the states of Washington, Oregon, New York, or adjacent states, you're, you're likely to continue using the West Coast ports. The big question is what, what, what everybody calls discretionary cargo, cargo that can either go into L.A. Long Beach and put on, be put on a truck or a train and shipped east. Uh, to your eventual markets, uh, or can go by an all-water route to directly to uh, a port on the east or Gulf Coast. Uh, before the expansion of the canal in 2016, the, the ports uh, along the west coast had a decided uh, physical geographic advantage. Uh, that, that started to be, be cut away by the expansion of the canal, but also by the fact, and, and here's the big distinction between what's been going on on the other coast in California. The, the ports in, along the eastern Gulf Coast have spent enormous amounts of money, a lot of it federal money appropriated by Congress, to expand their cargo handling capacity. Uh, they've done so because they've enjoyed a considerable amount of support uh, locally and especially among their members of Congress. You don't find that kind of support out here. What you find in California is, is a, a, a negative attitude uh, toward the state seaports. More often than not, they're not regarded as economic assets that create lots of jobs. They're viewed as dirty. Mm. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Jock, uh, Jock O'Connell, International Trade Advisor at Beacon Economics. Yeah, by the way, we did reach out to both the International Longshore and Warehouse Union and the Pacific Maritime Association, but our requests went unanswered. I don't know why they wouldn't want to talk to us. We're perfectly charming. We're very nice. Very nice. Still ahead, imagine using your printer to make dinner. If you could, imagine it. And if you did, would you eat it? One company's hoping that you will. I can imagine it. Yeah. But I also can imagine not wanting it. But right. we'll, we'll find out because it's serious. And, and how will the food come out if your printer is out of ink? <laughs> right. I don't know if you want ink on the fish or the meat anyway. Uh, I'd rather have, you know, maybe a nice... T- well, that's, that's, <laughs> uh, right now, though, lawyers for former President Trump have met with Justice Department officials to talk about the classified documents case the feds are looking into. With us is Gene Rossi, attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. Gene, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. So uh, what does it suggest to you as a former federal prosecutor that the Trump team, Team Trump, I suppose, uh, had a meeting with the DOJ? What does that mean? I I presume they didn't all get together to share stories of summer camp and have some coffee. (laughs) Maybe they did. No, I don't think it was about summer camp. I'm going to draw a baseball analogy because I know uh, both of you are big uh, Dodger fans. Um, if this is nine innings, we are probably in the bottom of the eighth inning and uh, approaching the ninth inning. And if I had a bet money, it looks like uh, special counsel Jack Smith is leaning towards presenting charges 
to the grand jury. It doesn't mean it's 100% sure, but the meeting that was held today, and I understand it was about 90 minutes, and I further understand that the attorney general was not there and the deputy attorney general were not, were not, was not there, only uh, Jack Smith and probably a couple of uh, assistant uh, prosecutors. What that means is they are getting ready to write a prosecution memo uh, that will present charges to the grand jury. And the attorneys, all three of them, and I know two of them, not the third one, uh, the defense attorneys are extremely capable. They have a lot of integrity. And they were doing what they're paid to do, and that's try to call DOJ off the ledge. But at the end of the day, today is not a good omen uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, it's highly likely, in my view, that the grand jury will be presented charges probably in July or August because there has to be a review process, and I think they have some more grand jury work to do. But as I go back to my analogy, I think it's in the bottom of the eighth. Mm -hmm. They're entering the bottom of the ninth, and uh, I think um, I think we could see an indictment this summer. Now, uh, Trump's lawyers had requested a meeting with Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, obviously, uh, Merrick Garland not in in this meeting, and some have assumed that this meeting was maybe in response to that request because the Trump lawyer said that they were going to complain about, you know, never in human history has a person been persecuted as much as Donald Trump. But then it strikes me, you know, that's it's kind of posing. Uh, is there a possibility that they went into this meeting and maybe uh, to to float a trial balloon of a plea deal? I don't think there was a plea discussion at this meeting. Um, I think it was they were trying to call them off the ledge. And uh, I commend them for trying to do that because that's what they should do. But I don't think there was any plea discussions. That that one I can categorically deny, even though I wasn't at the meeting. But I will say this. In my close to 30 years with DOJ, I did have meetings in the bottom of the eighth inning where the defense attorney and the defendant sometimes came in and I was ready to pull the trigger. I was ready to present the charges to the grand jury. And there was one or two times uh, where I decided um, that it wasn't fair to go forward. Uh, but that's very rare. And based on what I know now in the public domain, the tape recording, allegedly, the notes of Evan Corcoran, who also has a lot of integrity, uh, his notes have been turned over. Uh, I just, I just can feel that we are at the end of the road and that uh, Jack Smith, uh, who's extremely talented, is uh, is leaning strongly towards presenting charges to grand jury. And if that happens, um, truth is stranger than fiction. We're going to have a former president who's been indicted, who will be indicted possibly on extremely serious charges. And the main charge to me, and I've said this repeatedly, uh, when you have obstruction of a grand jury process, uh, juries uh, do not look kindly upon that. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Gene Rossi is attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. A little bit later on, we are going to be talking about the future of food, and it may have something to do with a printer. You know what's all over my printer? Not yeah. food, but cat hair. Cat hair. Yeah, because the cat loves to sit on the printer. Yeah. And so whenever I have to print something, I get to push them off. 
and I'm going to brush a mountain of cat hair off. Yeah, but someday you may want to print a steak. You do not want cat hair no, on steak. No, although I wonder if I could print a cat. Oh, well. Interesting. You know. All right. Uh, right now, though, President Biden could be in for a very tough reelection uh, campaign next year against uh, wherever the Republican Party nominee winds up being. Philip Lacavera is with us. He's a former deputy solicitor general of the U.S. as well as former counsel to the Watergate special prosecutor. And he's got an idea about who President Biden could pick as his running mate. Uh, this is assuming if, if he doesn't like uh, Kamala anymore. Uh, he wrote about it in an opinion piece for The Messenger. Thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be with you this afternoon. So right off the bat, who would this uh, surprise vice presidential nominee for Joe Biden be? Well, it sounds crazy at first blush, but I think the right choice for him is Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama could replace Kamala Harris uh, without losing a vital constituency that uh, Biden would need for re-election. Uh, and he satisfies the, the number one problem that Biden faces, which is concern not only among Republicans and independents, but even among many Democrats, uh, that he's maybe too old and too frail uh, to be yet turned for another four years, uh, which he might not be able to serve. Is the real problem, though, here, because clearly that's the reason why you came up with this notion about perhaps Barack Obama should be on the ticket. But that means it sort of begs the question that is the perception in Washington and perhaps more importantly in the country that Kamala Harris is a loser on that ticket? I think that's the second problem that Biden has. Uh, she is widely unpopular. She's failed to impress even uh, the people in the Democratic leadership. She certainly is a cipher in the, in the eyes, of, according to public opinion polls, of independence who would be necessary. And the key thing is for, for Biden to uh, have the highest chance of getting reelected, he's got to be willing to, to uh, pick somebody on his, on his team who will encourage his supporters and independents to turn out and uh, I, I don't think Kamala Harris is that person, at least according to everything that one can assess. She just hasn't lived up to the challenges of convincing the country that she's ready to step into the first spot. Now, there's certain to be uh, a true that Republicans, if if this were to happen, would challenge that on the grounds that, uh, hey, uh, Barack Obama has been president for two terms already. Isn't that the constitutional limit? Well, that's the issue that I discuss in my piece in The Messenger. And as I view it, I think the Constitution does not prevent Barack Obama from running for vice president and, if it became necessary, succeeding to the office. The 22nd Amendment, as uh, your listeners may, may be aware, was passed uh, uh, to deal with the FDR problem when uh, FDR continued running for president to term after term after term. And so the 22nd Amendment was adopted to say that no person shall be elected more than twice as president. Uh, when you actually parse the terms of the Constitution, my analysis is uh, that that does not prevent Barack Obama from running to be vice president. Uh, just as it wouldn't prevent him from uh, having any of the other taking any of the other possible routes to becoming president other than by direct election, such as 
uh, running for Congress as John Quincy Adams once did and becoming speaker and succeeding to the office that way, or under the 25th Amendment, which uh, was passed uh, during the next Nixon years when there was a vacancy in the office of vice president, uh, the 25th Amendment allows a, a president to nominate and Congress to approve anybody uh, to become vice president who then could succeed to the office. So my my analysis is Barack Obama can't run to be president, but he can become president by uh, first running to be vice president. But Philip, as, as intriguing of an idea as it is, uh, wouldn't uh, inevitably the Republicans, I mean, talk about, you know, they're still trying to litigate the last uh, election. Uh, wouldn't they litigate the death out of this thing and we'd end up with a protracted legal dispute while, you know, who would be running the country? Not necessarily protracted. Remember in Bush versus Gore, which was itself a controversial uh, decision on the merits, the Supreme Court acted uh, immediately uh, within a few weeks after the election to get the, uh, the issue resolved about uh, who was entitled to the uh, uh, the final casting of the ballots for the uh, electors uh, for the presidency. I think the same uh, process would, would unfold quickly enough. And part of my analysis is that the current Supreme Court, which is dominated by so-called textualists, uh, which is the, the, the constitutional view adopted by the, uh, the current uh, philosophy that controls the Republican Party, those people try to adhere faithfully to the text of the Constitution. And as I was explaining, I think the text of the Constitution makes Barack Obama eligible to run for and be elected as vice president. All right. Thanks so much, Philip Lacavera, with a compelling idea that uh, for uh, Joe Biden to win the election in 2024, he should pick Barack Obama as his vice presidential running mate. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Investigators trying to figure out why a small plane that crashed in Virginia flew into restricted airspace over Washington, D.C. All four people on board were killed. The incident sent fighter jets into the air at hypersonic speeds. Chris Mano is a former Air Force and American Airlines pilot who has conducted aircraft accident investigations. Chris, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. Is there some sort of operating theory at the moment about what possibly happened on board that aircraft? Well, it's too early to figure on a cause, but it bears such a resemblance to the Payne Stewart Learjet crash in 1999 that was attributed to hypoxia, meaning there wasn't oxygen available once they reached altitude. And the effects of hypoxia would be to have everyone on board unconscious in a fairly short amount of time. So uh, are there any theories, if that is uh, the case, that the plane was flying toward its destination and then appears to have turned around, uh, what would account for that if the uh, pilot and the people on board were incapacitated? A, a lot of times, if that happens, when the, uh, the flight management system runs out of waypoints, it chooses the last waypoint that was actually loaded in there, which would cause then a navigational turn. At that point, there was no one in the cockpit in command of the aircraft. So it was doing what it was taught to do and would continue to do until it ran out of fuel. If there's one thing that the uh, American aviation industry is good at, and it's good at many things, but one of the things it is really good at, I think, 
is learning from past accidents and taking steps so that the accident that happened a year ago is not likely to repeat itself a year from now. You mentioned the uh, Payne Stewart incident, which was in the, what was it again, late 1990s? October 25th, 1999. 99, okay. So did we not learn from that to make sure that if, in fact, this incident has a similar root cause, that it wouldn't happen again? I think so. And I think the FAA and the NTSB has done a very good job of that because we're talking about essentially 24 years since that type of thing had happened. But we don't know what the failure mode was in the pressurization system. So it would be too early to tell what cause factor there was but it would seem in an approximate sense that the most logical thing was hypoxia that made the, the crew incapacitated, in which case that aircraft's going to fly and navigate until it runs out of fuel. Tell us a little bit more about uh, hypoxia. What does that feel like if, if, if it were to happen to you? I've actually had experience with hypoxia because as part of Air Force pilots training, you're taken to 25,000 feet on oxygen, and then you take your mask off and try to complete easy tasks, which it seems uh, fairly easy when you're doing it, but eventually you end up graying out. It's very insidious, and that exercises to let you know what your hypoxia symptoms are. So I was always aware in my 35-year career as an American Airlines pilot, when I'm starting to feel a particular sensation, my first uh, check is hypoxia. You actually uh, bring me to this question, which is this aircraft that we're talking about, uh, it was a small business jet. I'm sure that some listeners might be wondering, could this happen on a large airliner? It's very doubtful, and the, uh, the airliners nowadays have an altitude warning system and some automated functions to let you know when it's starting to change. Uh, you can catch this much more easily in a commercial airliner with some backup systems of monitoring pressurization, a pressurization alarm system that say, hey, the cabin is climbing. And then immediately the cockpit's going on oxygen and taking remedial action. That's just standard. And that just does not happen on commercial airliners. We still don't know who the people were on this uh, uh, this flight. So far as I know, that information has not been officially released yet. But uh, I did see some reporting that the uh, owner of the airline had, uh, when reached for comment, uh, mentioned something about his family was on board this plane. Uh, do, do we know any more about that right now? Well, the Associated Press was saying his daughter and granddaughter, along with the flight crew, were the ones on the aircraft. It didn't say anything about a flight service person. So four people would, uh, I would assume, be the two pilots and then the two passengers. Is this the type of aircraft that has a history of issues? No, the Citation's a very stable platform. It's a very good air. Uh, it's kind of a workhorse of the business jet industry. It's a very good uh, aircraft. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Chris Mano is a former Air Force and American Airlines pilot who's conducted a lot of aircraft accident investigations. Okay, so you're getting home and you're hungry and you're thinking, you know, I'd like a maybe a nice steak or or maybe some fish. Yeah. Maybe if you're really hungry, a steak and fish Mm -hmm. or maybe a steak and fish and some pasta. Yeah. Or maybe keep adding it on, Charles. But you're just too tired to, to cook. Well, this is where the science comes in. A food-on-demand 3D printer has just made a fish fillet. Here to tell us how it works is Eric Coffin, CEO of Stakeholder Foods. Steak spelled S-T-E-A-K. That's clever. Yes, yes. Uh, which made the printed fish meal. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. The very first question that we're going to ask, well, I can think of two first questions. I'll ask the first first question. Uh, a printer needs something to print from, right? It doesn't just make things out of out of nothing. An inkjet printer needs ink. So if you if you print food, what the heck do you load it up with to make a fish fillet? So uh, first of all, you load it with real cells. We collect real cells from real fish. We know how to grow these cells, and then we mix them with our unique bioinks, and that's what we load into the printer. After it's printed, you can see, as you saw in the pictures, that like a real uh, filet that that is printed through these bioinks. And does this filet look, smell, taste, and have the nutritional value of an actual fish? So it tasted amazing. It smelled as a fish. It's almost exactly the same. It's not 100% exactly the same because it didn't contain 100% cultivated fish ingredients. It was the only portion. But the nutritional value can be tailored. So you have a software that determines exactly what will be the composition of this filet. It will be more fatty, less fatty, more protein inside, less protein inside. Everything can be tailored for one needs. Well, sign me up for more fat because I love that. Uh, is it <laughs> is it possible to print other things besides fish yet, uh, like say a steak and a hamburger? And if not, how long is that going to take? Sure. So we are the the leading company with respect to the printing capabilities. We have three D printed already a vagio like steak, and the possibilities are endless. The the printer, as the time will evolve, will be able to three D print products that nature cannot create right now. You can mix things, you can tailor things, you let your imagination go go wild. I mean like a shrimp steak. <laughs> For instance, yes. Uh, is this the kind of thing that you envision having in people's homes, like they now have uh, you know, an oven or a microwave? At some point in the not too distant future, do you envision people having a food printer at home and they would just as we said in the lead-in, come home and throw in some cells or however they would get the ingredients and print up their dinner? So it's a step-by-step process. First of all, we are uh, tailoring our printers to be scalable. So they're intended to be as factories, not not in one's home. But in the in the future, for sure, we can see these printers as the one that showcased the, the printing of the first uh, ever 3D printed fish fillet, not such a big printer. So, so for sure, in the in the future, we will see these printers at homes, printing whatever family wants to print. So, for now, this is kind of on an industrial scale. Would this be something that uh, you think fast food uh, chains would be interested in investing in, and perhaps uh, just uh, printing out their fast food fish fillets? I think that the 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 picture is much broader. Uh, the, the cultivated industry wants to feed the world and uh, and there's not enough proteins to feed the world so i think that it will be much broader than only uh, fast food chains we will see butcher houses that will 3d print uh, cultivated meat we will see other uh, factories 3d printing fish and yes we can also see it in in fast food chains uh, 3d printing fishes as we've 3d printed in our factory so let's say you're invited to a really swanky dinner party, you know, the kind where everybody drives up in Lamborghinis, that kind of place, and you go to it, and the main course is a fish. Now, tell the truth. Would you rather have on your plate a fresh fish having just been 
caught maybe the day before and prepared by the chef in the kitchen, or a fish that came out of a printer? Tell the truth. So, yes, yes, I'll tell the truth. I think that the it's a process. The the level that these products have reached is still not there. It's like a very new industry, but it's an industry that is about to explode. So this fish will not replace at this point a fish that's somewhat like a, a fresh fish from the sea. It's not there yet, but in the future, I can assure you that this fish or the Vagio steak that we will print, it will look exactly the same and be exactly the same, but it will be sustainable. So no, no emissions extracted to the air, no pollution that was involved in it. And I think that, yes, in the future, for sure, I will, I will replace this product with, with the one that I'm used to. And not only me, hopefully, like a large population of the world. Now, uh, a final question. I, I've never worked with a 3D printer, certainly never worked with a 3D food printer, but I have worked with printers, and they do cause headaches sometimes. So what happens if I'm trying to print a fish and the printer gets jammed? So I, I think that if you are used to working with printers, that's also a learning curve. So first, alpha and beta printers will have their uh, challenges, and there are challenges that can be addressable. But at the long, long run, as any industry that wants to scale itself, I think it won't be like an issue that, that needs too much attention. All right. Uh, thanks so much. That's uh, Eric Kaufman, uh, CEO of Stakeholder Foods, yeah. making the uh, printed fish meal. So that's the future. We'll have our yeah. food printed for us. We could put a food printer right here in the studio. We have enough trouble getting our regular printers I to work, let alone and, a fish and you printer. Know, this raises an issue that I would like to bring up with the producers of In-Depth, Charles, and yeah. you can help me out okay. by helping to push for this. Whenever we do a food segment, uh-huh. we should be able to eat said food. We should, but I don't know if I'd want to eat a printed fish. I'm willing to try anything once. You would? Unless it kills me, then I won't try it again. Can you imagine going to a restaurant though in the future and going, can you please print out the bill and my fish? Thank <laughs> at you. At the same time, there you go. That's it for KDX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.